Welcome to Music History Monday for July 24th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Ernest Bloch. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on July 24, 1880, 143 years ago today, of the Swiss-born American composer and educator Ernest Bloch, who was born in Geneva, Switzerland. He died in Portland, Oregon, on July 15, 1959, at the age of 78. Establishing a genealogy. People trace their family trees for all sorts of reasons, to establish family connections, to collect family medical information, to meet other people engaged in such research, and so forth. But at the root, pun intended, of these and other reasons to establish a family tree, is the issue of self-identity, the desire to connect with oneself by connecting with one's ancestors, learning what we can of who they were, where they came from, what sort of lives they led, and what they accomplished. With the advent of genetic testing sites like 23andMe, AncestryDNA, LivingDNA, and home DNA, the whole family tree trip has taken a crazy giant step forward in that our family trees have gone from saplings to 400-year-old oaks. A couple of years ago, bored to death during the pandemic and unable to resist any longer, my wife and I were so tested using the site 23andMe. Here are my results. Ashkenazi Jewish, 98.9%. French and German, 0.6%. Sudanese, 0.2%. Northern Indian and Pakistani, 0.1%. Unassigned, 0.2%. Hey, you betcha that 0.2% Sudanese caught my attention. The major drawback of having multiple testing sites is that your DNA can only be compared to others who have been tested using the same site. Nevertheless, my results are fascinating. Not unexpectedly, the person with whom I share the most DNA is my brother Steve. We share 53.1% of our DNA and 45 segments, those segments being sections of DNA that are identical between two individuals. According to 23andMe, at number 1,508 of my 1,510 DNA relatives is my wife, Nancy Tucker, who is rated as being a distant cousin with 0.12% DNA shared and one segment. According to 23andMe, Nancy and I have in common a pair of ancestors 
more distant than our fifth great-grandparents, making us more than sixth cousins. Experiential DNA. Might I be so bold as to suggest that family members are not the only people who share, in quotations, DNA? By DNA in quotations, I'm not referring to the chemical deoxyribonucleic acid, but rather what we might call experiential DNA, wisdom passed down from one generation to the next via one-on-one -on -one relationships, one-on-one -on -one mentorships. This is precisely the sort of DNA that is shared by musicians, composers, instrumentalists, and singers, musicians whose education consists of a series of one-on-one -on -one relationships with their teachers. For example, as an undergraduate, I studied composition primarily with Edward T. Cohn, 1917 to 2004. When it came time for graduate school, Ed wanted me to continue my studies with his friend, Andrew Imbry, 1921 to 2007, at the University of California, Berkeley. And so I did. Andy Imbry became not only my composition mentor, but served as my PhD thesis advisor. While at UC Berkeley, I developed another very close mentor-student relationship with the composer Ollie Wilson, 1937 to 2018. Ed Cohn, Andy Imbry, and Ollie Wilson are, and always will be, my most treasured and most important composition teachers. Just so, Ed, Andy, and Ollie were shaped by their own mentors, mentors whose experiences, knowledge, and wisdom they passed on to me. For genealogists, tracking their family's roots allow them to connect more deeply with themselves by learning about their family's past. For the musicians among us, tracing our teachers' roots, our experiential DNA, allows us to connect with our artistic forebearers and to understand those artistic proclivities that have literally been bred into us. Lineage, identity, and making things personal. So, here is my compositional lineage. Both Edward Cohn and Andrew Imbry graduated from Princeton University, where they studied with the American composer and theorist Roger Huntington Sessions, 1896-1985. Sessions's principal composition teacher was the Swiss-born American composer Ernest Bloch, 1880-1959, today's birthday boy. Before settling in the United States, Bloch studied with the German composer Iwan Knorr, K-N-O-R-R, 1853-1916, at Hock University in Frankfurt. Iwan Knorr's principal teacher was the German composer, conductor, and pianist Karl Reinecke, 1824-1910. Okay, Karl Reinecke 
cut a wide swath through mid-19th century European music. He was the music director of Leipzig's elite Gewandhaus Orchestra for 35 years, from 1860 to 1895, and a professor of composition and piano at the Leipzig Conservatory, an institution personally founded by Felix Mendelssohn in 1843, from 1865 to 1902. Among Reinecke's students at the Leipzig Conservatory were not just the aforementioned Iwan Knorr, but, check this out, Edvard Grieg, Charles Villiers Stanford, Leos Janáček, Itzek Albany, Walter Niemann, Felix Weingartner, Max Bruch, and many others. Karl Reinecke himself had studied with Felix Mendelssohn, 1809 to 1847, Robert Schumann, 1810 to 1856, and Franz Liszt, 1811 to 1886. Liszt studied with Antonio Salieri, 1750 to 1825, as did both Franz Schubert, 1797 to 1828, and Ludwig van Beethoven, 1770 to 1827. Beethoven's principal teacher was the German organist and composer Christian Gottlob Nefer, 1748 to 1798, whose own principal teacher was the German composer and conductor Johann Adam Hiller, 1728 to 1804. Hiller was a composer and organist who studied organ, with Johann Sebastian Bach, 1685 to 1750, while he, Hiller, attended Leipzig University. Now, that's as far as we need go, because as my ancestors go, Sebastian Bach was and remains not just my bedrock, but the bedrock of modern concert music. Finally, having tried your patience as far as I dare, to the point. Mine is a pretty impressive compositional lineage, if I don't say so myself. It is a lineage of mentors and role models, the cumulative wisdom of which lives on, to some degree, or so I would very much like to believe, in me. And as my friends, patrons, and students, you may all consider yourselves part of this wonderful musical family tree as well. So say I. If my compositional fathers are Edward Cohn, Andrew Imbry, and Ollie Wilson, and my compositional grandfather is Roger Sessions, then my compositional great-grandfather is Sessions's principal teacher, Ernest Bloch. And so this post on Ernest Bloch, as well as tomorrow's Dr. Bob prescribes is personal. Ernest Bloch, Brief Biography. He was one of those rare individuals that people just liked to be around. Now, this is not hearsay. Over the last 40 plus years, I've heard this firsthand over and over again. 
Block finished his teaching career as a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, until his retirement as Professor Emeritus in 1952. When I arrived for graduate school at UC Berkeley in 1978, 26 years after Block's retirement, there were still scads of people around who remembered him, and they remembered him to a person with awe and the deepest affection. Aside from being a composer and teacher of the greatest accomplishments, Bloch was an outstanding pianist, violinist, conductor, and an avid photographer. He acquired his Leica camera in 1927 and left behind over 2,000 prints and 6,000 negatives. A close friend of Alfred Steiglitz, Bloch understood that photography, like music composition, was an art form. Many of his photographs are today housed in the Ernest Bloch Archive at the Center for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona, Tucson, side by side with photos taken by Edward Weston, Ansel Adams, and Richard Avedon. It was Ansel Adams, himself an accomplished pianist, who said that, quote, the photographic negative is the equivalent of the composer's score, and the print is the performance, unquote. Bloch was as well a gifted painter, a collector and polisher of agates, a mycologist, that means a mushroom expert, a famed raconteur, like those mushrooms, he was known as a fun guy, and a great lover and advocate for nature. He was born into a Jewish family in Geneva, Switzerland on July 24, 1880, 143 years ago today. He began violin lessons at the age of nine and was composing soon after. Uh, the little tyke was talented and was sent off to study at the Brussels Conservatory with the famed Belgian violinist Eugène Issey. As a student, he corresponded with Gustav Mahler and met Claude Debussy. At the age of 20, he moved to Germany, where he studied composition with Ivan Knorr at the Hock Conservatory of Music in Frankfurt. Success as both a performer and composer followed. In 1916, at the age of 36, Bloch signed on as conductor for the sensational and controversial dancer Maud Allen and her dance troupe for a tour of the United States. <laughs> well, alas, that tour, which began in Albany, New York on September 28, 1916, went bust, and Ernest Bloch found himself stranded in Ohio. Oh my. But Bloch was simply too talented to fail. He quickly found work, initially as the first teacher of music composition at the Manus School of Music in New York City in 1917, and then as the director of the Cleveland Institute of Music in 1920. In 1924, Bloch became an American citizen. And then, in 1925, he came home to the West Coast, to California. Here's what happened. 
Block was not happy with the city of Cleveland or as director of the Cleveland Institute. According to Block, he found that in Cleveland, quote, there is dirt and bad air and ugliness, unquote. At the same time, he was, by his own admission, wasting away in the mistake by the lake, Block's music was becoming increasingly popular in San Francisco, where it was being championed by the music director slash conductor of the San Francisco Symphony, Alfred Hertz. 1872 to 1942. He led the San Francisco Symphony from 1915 to 1930. Parenthetically, I would tell you that Alfred Hertz deserves a post all his own. For our information, after leaving the symphony in 1930, Hertz joined the music faculty at the University of California, Berkeley. The current music department concert hall opened in 1958 is named in his honor. Alfred Hertz, along with Reuben Rinder, the famed cantor of San Francisco's uber-prestigious Temple Emmanuel, began to encourage Block to relocate to the San Francisco Bay Area in the early 1920s. But Block, by then the married father of three children, needed a day gig. That gig was soon forthcoming as director of the recently founded San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Block made the move and took the gig and became director of the San Francisco Conservatory from 1925 to 1930. I taught at the conservatory from 1983 until 2001 at a time when the school was located at 1201 Ortega Street in San Francisco's Sunset District, not far from the Pacific Ocean. A large photograph of Block hung proudly in the lobby of the concert hall. Block liked San Francisco, writing apropos of the city by the bay, quote, The streets here fascinate me with their diversity. The people have more preoccupation with art. A greater proportion have time and inclination to enjoy life for its own sake." Unquote. It was while living and working in San Francisco that Bloch conceived and was commissioned to compose what is, I believe, not only his greatest religious work, but is his magnum opus. His so-called Hebrew oratorio, the sacred service, for baritone, vocal soloists, mixed choir, and orchestra. Composed along the lines of the passions of Bach, it is an altogether superb work, virtually without parallel in the repertoire. It will be the subject of tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes Post. A Lost Reputation we will pick up Bloch's biography from this point in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. But before finishing this post, we must broach a painful subject, and that is Bloch's lost reputation. Ernest Bloch's obituary in the New York Times, published on July 16, 1959, the day after his death, 
begins this way. Quote, Mr. Block, one of the most important composers of the present century, neither founded a school nor had active disciples, as has been the case with many of his contemporary colleagues. His music was much too original to be imitated. And while Mr. Block himself was a noted pedagogue, he never foisted his own on the works of his pupils, being content to analyze great masters like Bach and Beethoven. Yet, by force of his musical personality and the uncompromising honesty of his ideas, he was recognized even by those who did not agree with his principles as one of the masters of contemporary music." Unquote. Was the anonymous writer of the Times obit indulging in post-mortem hyperbole by calling Bloch one of the most important composers of the present century? No, not from the point of view of someone writing in 1959. In fact, many of the greatest musicians plying their trades at that time believed Bloch to be among the eternal ones, the fourth of the killer bees after Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. According to the legendary cellist Pablo Casals, 1876-1973, quote, For me, the greatest composer of our time is Ernest Bloch, unquote. The famed Italian composer, pianist, and conductor Alfredo Casella, 1883-1947, said of Ernest Bloch that, quote, his art is one of grandeur and majesty, which sometimes recalls the Moses of Michelangelo." Unquote. The American-born violinist Yehudi Menuhin (1960–1999) wrote this of Maestro Bloch: quote, "Ernest Bloch has always seemed to me to be one of the seven wonders." like Hercules, a world of ecstasy, of pain, rested on his shoulders. He also seemed at one with the great vistas and jagged peaks of the Swiss Alps, against which he loved to photograph himself. He was a superb photographer, one of the first generation of Leica fanatics, as at Agate Beach with the pounding Pacific breakers. He was cast by the gods in a superhuman mold, a prophetic scale of size and vision, of strength and vitality, which exceeded the common mortals." Unquote. So what happened to Ernest Bloch's reputation as a composer? Because no matter how much the musical community respects him and his music today, one will have to look long and hard and probably in vain to find someone willing to call him, quote, one of the most important composers of the 20th century, unquote. Was he overrated in his lifetime? Or is he, for reasons to be discussed, underrated today? We shall run with the latter. Like so many, 
early to mid 20th century composers. Bloch's music was largely lost among the din of post-World War II modernism and then rendered seemingly irrelevant by the social and political upheavals of the 1960s and the advent of rock and roll. We should take consolation in the knowledge that this sort of rendered irrelevant thing happens all the time. Much of Sebastian Bach's music likewise fell into disrepute and then obscurity after his death in 1750, not because of the quality of his music, but because of the changing tastes and the artistic politics of the second half of the 18th century. It wasn't until enough time had passed and the artistic politics surrounding the rejection of Bach's musical language had dissipated that all of his music could be embraced and appreciated for its magnificence and timeless significance. And while I'm not comparing the music of Ernest Bloch to that of Johann freaking Sebastian Bach, I am suggesting that the artistic political circumstances that have seen the marginalization of Bloch's music in the years since his death are not unlike those that affected Bach's music 200 years before. So, will there be, as there was for Sebastian Bach, a Bloch revival? I don't know. But if there is to be one, let it start with tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.